1: This is The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron
2: Arbaugh. The Word
1: Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I
3: need word to stand
0: on.
2: Welcome to the Tuesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and anything and everything that's on your heart and mind. Uh, we'll do the best that we can. 340-9585 is our phone number for your live calls. That's 340 340- 9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. At 630-5757, you can email questions to us by emailing questions at CalvarySA.com. Or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way for you to call is by using the hands-free feature of the KSLR free mobile app. Just hit the call now button. You'll be connected directly to the studio. 340-9585. A couple of things that I I, I need to talk about today. And I'll ask for your uh, forgiveness in advance because I'm probably going to be doing it a lot over the next Oh, ten 10 days or so. I would like you to write down this date. Saturday, October the 28th, uh, we at Calvary Chapel San Antonio will be hosting our uh, 18th Joy of Jesus Crusade event. Uh, it is an outreach for people at the park. It's at downtown uh, uh, Travis Park in downtown San Antonio. Uh, there is a lot of homeless people down there, and we minister to them every year. But this year, we're going to do some things to, to get people other than the homeless community out there in bigger numbers. Not that we want big numbers. This is all free. Uh, we just want the opportunity to share Jesus with people. We're going to be featuring uh, a concert by Jocelyn Enriquez this year. Uh, in addition, a couple of other, uh, our pastor, uh, Pastor Nelly and his wife, will be also performing. Um, What we'd like to do is just have people out there so that we can win the lost to Christ. Uh, Free food, to be sure, lots and lots and lots of clothing that we'll be giving away. Uh, Free haircuts, makeovers, um, uh, manicures, just pretty much anything and everything. Our whole medical staff will be out there to provide medical care. Uh, Free Bibles, we give away free bicycles. Um, we, We just want people to know that God loves them. Uh, this is our signature outreach every year. There's thousands of people that will be there uh, during that day throughout, the, throughout the, the the day at the park. Uh, the hours are 11 o'clock in the morning until 4 in the afternoon. And what I would ask is for you to pass the word around. I promise you, if you get out there and you see what's going on, you'll wonder, how in the world does this thing work? Well, it's been working for a long, long time, and lots and lots of people have been saved As a result, most importantly, uh, we get to declare Jesus Christ. We get to love sometimes people who are treated as though they're unlovable. Really, really important thing. So, um, Saturday, October the 28th, at 11 o'clock in the morning until 3 in the afternoon, Joy of Jesus at Travis Park in downtown San Antonio. Uh, something else I'd like to share with you. Just, I think we need to realize sometimes how small our world is, and and how many people are hurting today. We had a family show up from Puerto Rico. Um, just got in late last night. They stopped by the church. They're familiar with Calvary Chapel, and and um, they they just want to stop by and see what they hope is going to be their their home church. Um, but you know, we're talking. We get three teenage kids, um, a husband and a wife, and they're going through a very, very difficult time, emotional time. They lost everything in the hurricane in uh, Puerto Rico. And, you know, we see it on the news, but we don't think, there's so many people who are hurting. There's so many people who are being uh, just uprooted. I was looking at these kids, and they're great, great kids, but uh, friends and family are left behind. Uh, they're, They're looking at a whole new life in San Antonio, Texas. Um, We need to keep people who are victims of these natural disasters in our prayers continually. I, like most of you, you know, I think about how difficult things are. um, But it doesn't really hit home until I'm talking to somebody and I see the tears. Um, The mother, bless her heart, um, she was taking Kleenex because she was crying trying to tell the story. so be open and welcoming to, to people wherever they come from. Be open and welcoming to them and share the love of Jesus Christ with them. Okay, let's get to some questions. 340-9585. Now, I said yesterday, I hope I don't have to do this again, but we got a third call yesterday just as the radio program went off the air. And it was another question about soul ties. So here's what I want to say. How can we be delivered from soul ties there's no such thing as soul ties. this is three calls in about six days. there's no somebody must be promoting it on the radio or on or in their church there's no such thing as soul ties. you might as well be battling zombies. there's just no such thing. so please 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 read your Bibles. Understand what Jesus has done for you. And if you are in a church or listening to somebody on television who doesn't know, uh, who's trying to promote this concept of soul ties, by all means, run away from that church. It is dangerous. It's damaging. It's just not true. Please, 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 just run from it. Okay, I'm done with statements that I had to make. Um, here is a question from uh, Jenny. She says, What is acceptable intimacy for believers in a relationship before marriage? Ginny, uh, it's a hard question because everybody's different. I don't know what your triggers are. I don't know uh, what level of temptation uh, is facing you. But um, whatever you're dealing with, you know when whatever intimacy you're experiencing is, is is causing you to get close to that line of temptation. So I don't know. I'm not one of those guys and I know there's a whole bunch of people that are tend toward legalism. Oh no, you should never hold hands, you should never kiss, you should I I, I, I wouldn't tell anybody that. I think it's unnatural for two people who are headed to marriage, not to hold hands, not to occasionally hug and to occasionally kiss. I just think we have to watch how we do it and what our reaction to doing it is. We need to be safe, for sure, but at the same time, it's just unnatural. We have kids in the church, and I mean kids here that are now grown kids, but, um, you know, they've they've actually, we've had some, some kids that have been, couples, and I mean that in the sense that they like slash love each other, and they've known it since they were little, and they walk in church and they sit around and they're afraid to see anybody, for anybody to see them with one another, they'll sit next to each other in church like boards they are so stiff, instead of just being normal and natural. So I, I, I don't think there is an acceptable level of intimacy. Uh, I just think it depends on you, where you are in your walk with the Lord, and and what triggers you have in your own life, Jenny, that you need to be aware of. Um, Never push a level of intimacy that your um, fiancé is uncomfortable with, but by all means, remain pure and do whatever you have to do in order to remain pure. So whatever it is. Kiss now and then, I, I just think, be careful. Holding hands, I think that's the most natural thing in the world for people who love each other. Just guard your chastity before the Lord. Make sure that when you stand before that pastor on your wedding day, that you can say that we have not defiled this relationship with sexual activity be real, real careful. Remember, Jenny, and this is for everybody in the audience, remember that when you're out on a date with somebody, Jesus is there. If you're a man or a boy and you've fallen in love with somebody and you believe that God brought him into your life, well, you've got to represent him in that case. And to defile the person that you believe God brought into your life, It's certainly a strange way of saying thanks to God for trusting you with this person. So just be careful. I don't think there are any hardcore rules. Uh, I know many, many, many in our culture would love a list of rules. This is okay. This is okay. This is not okay. But, um, Jenny, there's just no such thing. Do all things as unto the Lord. I hope that helps. 340-9585. Here's a question from Anna, a difficult one. It's Anna or Anna. You know, Hispanic uh, uh, is Anna usually, and and the rest is Anna. But uh, so I don't really know. I'm sorry if I am not sure. I don't know who this is. She wants to know: Is your church complementarian, and if so, why? I like your teaching, but could never call someone my pastor if they didn't allow women to be pastors. And our church is complementarian. Let me explain what that is to the to the radio audience. Um, in our church culture there's two schools of thought complementarianism and egalitarianism Um, uh, egalitarianism is a complete equality and there's no restrictions or or, or requirements on any position in ministry and that women can uh, do anything and everything that a man can do but that's not Christian that's feminism complementarian means male headship and our church is complementarian uh, I'm obviously a man. My wife is not a pastor. Uh, all of our elders are pastors, or I'm sorry, are, 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 uh, are males. Um, and, and the reason we are is because that's what the Bible says. Now, if I allowed a woman to be a pastor in this church, and I'll only speak about this church, then I would be violating... The word of God. So what you need to do, Anna or Anna, what you need to do is read your Bible. Don't read it through a feminist lens. Don't read it through a liberal church lens. Don't read it through, well, I think I can be a pastor because if a man can do it, I can do it. Simply read the Bible and take it for what it says. You know, we're told over and over in the New Testament that Christ is the head of the church. And that means he establishes the rules. He establishes all the guidelines. And our responsibility is simply to follow them. Not to interpret them, but to follow them. And so we are proudly complementarian, but obviously we do not deny women opportunities to minister. uh, The only role that is where women are not permitted to, to, to partake here at cover Chapel is um, pastoral or elder ministry because the rules have been set by the one who is the head of this church, Jesus Christ. Very, very important. Um, all of our pastors and all of our elders are men, again, because that's what the Bible says. So I, I, I'm grateful you like my teaching, but trust it now. Because this is what the Bible says. You know, and we've got a call holding, so um, let me just say this very quickly. Um, When you're listening to somebody teach the Bible, and that person speaks to your heart, and you check out what he says according to the Word of God, and you find it consistent and honest, why then do you think that that we're wrong in this one area? Because it disagrees with your worldview? See, it's very important that we understand that we have no right to our own opinion or our own worldview. All we have is an obligation to be obedient. Let's go to line one and talk with Enrique on uh, line one. Enrique, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey,
3: Pastor, can you hear me?
2: I can hear you fine, thanks.
3: Okay, question is, I heard someone talking about purgatory and they pointed to... Why Corinthians chapter three verse thirteen is proving that it's biblical. Now I know the answer, but uh, I want to hear your answer and I'll hang up and listen. Have a great okay, day.
2: Thank you, thank you Enrique. 1 Corinthians three thirteen. That breaks up a sentence, so let me go back to twelve. If many if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, His work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And then I'll go one verse more. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping the flames. Uh, In Reiki, this this verse, in fact, this chapter has nothing whatsoever to do with, with hell or the judgment of hell. Um, This has only to do with the reward seat of Christ, the bema in the Greek, B-E-M-A, and and it is sort of a victor's platform in the old um, uh, Olympic Games, the ancient Olympic Games. Uh, The athletes who won would stand on a victor's platform, much like they do in the modern Olympics, and they would receive uh, their crowns. Um, Well, this is what Paul is talking about, and he's talking to an out-of-control church And what he's saying is simply this, Um, our works are going to be tested as to quality, whether they're good works or they turn out to be good for nothing works. And on that day, we will either receive rewards or lose rewards. But this has nothing to do with judgment. Our judgment is already settled in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, And this passage of Scripture couldn't be anything, couldn't be any further from talking about uh, an eternal judgment or a purgatory or a holding pen or anything else. It just isn't true. Uh, This is about that moment when every Christian will stand before God and our works will be tested. What was our motive? Did we do it for us or did we do it for Jesus? Did we do what God wanted but we did it our way or did we do it His way? And the good works will be rewarded. Those are the gold, uh, silver, and costly stones works. The wood, hay, and stubble or, stubble, or straw works, are the works that were no good, or good for nothing. And uh, even when you get down to verse 15, it says, if it's burned up, he will suffer loss. It means we're all going to lose rewards. The things that we did that turned out not to be with the right motive or things that we turned out, we did that we thought were good, but we were doing it for us. We're going to lose the rewards that God intended for us. But he even qualifies it in the 15th verse. The one standing at that judgment seat will be saved. But the idea only one is escaping through the flames is like just barely there won't be anything left. Jesus dealt with our salvation and our judgment. He will deal with us and reward us or take rewards from us for our works, depending on whether they were good or bad. So Enrique, I hope that helps. This passage has nothing whatsoever to do with um, Hades or purgatory. Let's go to line two and talk with Alan. Alan, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Hey, Pastor Ron. Thank you so much. How are you? This is a Muslim friend. How are you today?
2: Oh, it's so good to hear from you. We've been talking (laughs) about you and praying for you. How are you doing?
3: Yeah, very good, very good. Thank you. I've been listening to your radio every day. So, um, yeah, I just want to make a comment, and then also I have a question for you. Uh, okay. The, the first comment that you were talking earlier about temptation, and I just want to include that temptation not only sexual, but also uh, temptations of gambling, temptation of drinking and smoking, using drugs, temptation of of pretty much collecting money, say the, uh, like hoarding money and and wealth and and goods, and, and uh, without sharing that with with others. Um,
2: on on that, we agree, Alan. Have,
3: yeah, yeah, yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, the the question that I have because I I, I hear you a lot saying that uh, a lot of people are saved and uh, um, whenever they come to you and they're saved and all that stuff. And I just my question is that uh, what guarantee guarantees do you have? For them that they are saved, indeed they are saved, and how uh, how they are saved, and what makes you sure they are saved? Okay, and that, I can that's do that. My question now. I'll, I'll be Thank listening you. on the radio. Thank
2: you. Thank you, Alan. God bless you. It is really, really good to hear from you again. Thank you. Sir. Um, okay. Well, the, what makes me know somebody's saved is is um, well three things. One, and most importantly, the Word of God. Um, uh, Jesus said that that um, if we believe in him, we will have eternal life. Uh, By believing in him, Ellen, you know this, it doesn't mean just having intellectual assent to the person of Jesus, but instead it means accepting him on his terms, coming to him. We can come to him any way we are, but we can only come to him on his terms. Now, we've been talking about this a lot in the book of Romans. Uh, What I've said repeatedly through our study in Romans is when you meet Jesus... When you really meet Jesus of the Bible, you change. You can't help but to change. When you give your life to him, that's what we mean by being saved. It's being rescued from sin and from the penalty of sin. And so when that happens, you change. So we have the evidence of change. It doesn't mean, Alan, that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't mess up. But here's the, the, the greatest evidence. I'll get to the biblical evidence in a moment. But here's the greatest visual evidence uh, in somebody's life. Uh, when they do something they know is wrong, when Christ lives in them, Paul says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. When that happens and we do something really, really bad, or, or something that doesn't didn't have to be really bad, just something we know is not what God wants us to do. Um, our conscience because the Holy Spirit is pricking our conscience. Our conscience knows that we have to do with something with it. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. For the believer, Alan, that means that the relationship with Jesus now is unencumbered by sin and we are completely reconciled to him and restored from uh, any break in the fellowship. Now, we also have... Uh, I'm only going to read one, but there's four or five that I could refer to. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, I think it is, says that when we give our life to Jesus Christ, that God gives the Holy Spirit to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, the guarantee wouldn't be good if I was the one who guaranteed it, but if it's God who guarantees it, then you know it's ironclad. So we're saved from sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. God gives us his spirit living within us as a, as a down payment on eternity, guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, we can go one step further. Jesus said, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. So, we have the daily witness of Christ, Um, Christ in us, but Christ with us. And if I'm talking to Jesus as I walk with him this morning, um, I I know my heart is right with him. I know that I'm in fellowship with him, so I know he's there. His presence in my life every single day matters. Now here's one of the problems that we have, Ellen, in the Christian community. Uh, Our problem is that we have a lot of Christians who answered an altar call and they think they're saved. Um, they, they got baptized, they think they're saved, maybe in an emotional moment where they were going through a terrible time, they, they cried big tears and they said, Jesus, I need help. Um, but they never really let Jesus take over. And by that I mean they never surrendered their heart to Jesus. They weren't born again, that's the term. Uh, Jesus said, except a man be born again, he said this to Nicodemus, the most religious man in all of Jerusalem. Except a man be born again, he will in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. So once we're born again, um, Jesus comes within us. That can never be lost. But a lot of Christians have an emotional experience, or professing Christians, I should say. A lot of professing Christians have an emotional experience, Alan, and yet they continue to live like they did before. You see no change. So when I'm talking about it, for instance, in a counseling session, and somebody says, well, I'm a Christian, uh, but I I drink too much, or I do drugs, or I'm living with somebody that I'm not married to, and we're having sex, Uh, I always ask them a question, well, what makes you think you're saved? And if they tell me, well, I was baptized, or I was raised in a Christian home, or I go to church, I tell them none of those things save. And so, Ellen, the thing that saves is a person, and that person his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth who is fully God, God in human flesh, he left the worship of angels. He considered a quality of God not something to be grasped, though he was fully God. He lived his life as a human, a perfect human, to die for the sins of other humans. So that's how we know. And I tell my church all the time that if you're walking with Jesus, you have no doubts about your salvation. If you're walking in the world and you're doing things that you're not supposed to, I believe our Bible is written to make that person feel very insecure. God wants us to be safe. He wants us to enjoy our security. But he won't let us feel secure when we're living in sin sins, such as the things that you mentioned in your comment on the other question. Thank you, Alan. It's really good to hear from you. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday edition of the program. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions or toll free 877 kslr We'll be back in two minutes.
1: to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of the program. Thanks for listening to me again during the break. It's always kind of strange when I've got my headphones on and I I hear me, um, but it was a Joy of Jesus announcement. So um, thanks for, for listening and we'd love to see you. Remember, it's Saturday, October 28th. From three o'clock to eleven. I'm sorry, from eleven o'clock to three o'clock uh, at Travis Park in downtown San Antonio. Here's a question from AA, and AA, I'm going to tell you up front, you threw me for a loop. Here's what your your question says: Romans sixteen seventeen says we should eschew evil and pursue goodness. Um, that's not what Romans sixteen seventeen says. This is First Peter chapter three, verse eleven. So it's 1 Peter 3.11, says we should eschew evil and pursue goodness. And then he said this, eschew doesn't get much press these days, perhaps because evil is so pervasive and no one wants to avoid it. My dilemma, I work with people who use vile language constantly. I would like to avoid them, but it's impossible. I've kindly told them to please avoid this language in my presence, but they continue almost to the point of knowing it upsets me. If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, what would you recommend I do to obey this command in love? And then in parentheses. And please don't say to pray for them. Believe me, I've tried and tried. Aa, i I'm going to say pray for them because they're lost. Now, I've got more for you than that. But please don't ever, ever stop praying. I think sometimes if we pray for an unbeliever and our motive in praying for them is that our life would be a little more comfortable. I don't want to hear this language, Lord, so make them stop. Um, I don't think that's the right motive for praying. I also think we need to be a little tougher. Um, We should have no expectation that unbelievers are going to behave the way believers should. You know, one of the things, A, that I want you to think about, when God puts one of his special ones, and and you may have gotten the job on yourself, but you're there, or, or by yourself, but you're there now. And so you're God's man there. Where does he need light more than in a dark place? So he's not talking about running away from evil and pursuing goodness at work because there's unbelievers. Wherever there are unbelievers, there's going to be a lot of evil. Uh, if, if, if we're not tough enough to, to take bad language, if we're not tough enough to, to um, understand that's just the way of this world, If we're not tough enough to to encounter people who live lifestyles that that are objectionable to us, the Bible defines those lifestyles as sin, then, then there's something wrong with us. We're too focused on self. Instead of treating them as the object of our ministry, we're looking at them as the enemy of our ministry. And we need to remember, we have no right to expect an unbeliever to behave. Now, I say that, and to my shame... I have to admit there's a lot of Christians who still use foul language and think nothing of it. So why would we worry about an unbeliever when Christians use the same kind of language? When Christians gossip, why, why don't we say anything about it when God's name is taken in vain? And by the way, AA, um, the only time I say something to an unbeliever is when they take God's name in vain. That is very difficult for me. And I ask him, and I always try to use this as an opportunity to share with him. I want him to see how much I love Jesus. I ask him, please don't do that. I love Jesus. I say, if you want to talk bad about somebody, talk bad about me. You want to take my name in vain, my name is Ron. But please don't take my God's name in vain. And I've had people get angry at me. Um, I've had other people apologize. And many times I've had people apologize to me after they got angry. And that gives me just one more opportunity to share. These kinds of situations at work AA, are opportunities to let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's very important that you don't have any expectations. If you're... If you're... Um, workplace environment offends you then you're too easily offended now I know it's not pleasant nobody wants to be around that but if you'd start looking at that as an opportunity to share Jesus with people then one thing for sure will happen and it'll be in your heart you'll begin to pray for those people to get saved so never stop praying for the people who are enemies of God Never, never, never. And maybe we all of us need to toughen up a little bit. There's just no biblical reason for us to expect unbelievers to act like believers, especially in light, as I said a moment ago, of all of the Christians, the professing Christians who don't. Romans sixteen seventeen, which you referred to wrongly, says... I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. He's talking about believers sowing discord there. But 1 Peter 3.11, let him eschew evil. And you're right, that doesn't get much press anymore. And do good, let him seek peace and ensue it or pursue it. So I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Let me see what we've got here for our next question. Um, anonymously, it says, I'm getting a divorce, in parentheses, not my fault. And I want to know if it's okay to start dating before the divorce is final. Anonymous, I'm assuming you're a Christian. The answer is no, no, a thousand times no. It is not okay to start dating. You are a married woman or a married man until the divorce is final. If the divorce is final, it's not your fault. You're free to remarry or you're free to date. But remember, this idea of starting dating. Christians shouldn't sport date. Christians aren't playing the field. Christians aren't just finding somebody to have fun with. Relationships matter to God. And as a believer, male or female, as a believer, you should be looking for the man or the woman that Jesus is preparing for you. So no, 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 it's not okay today. Being separated is not... excuse. People say, and I've had this exact question from people in our church, but pastor, I'm lonely. Everybody else has somebody in there having fun. Well, why can't I because God said so I'm sorry that you're getting a divorce um, but you want to begin investing now in the next relationship by keeping it pure by keeping it pure I'm going to say one other thing anonymous I don't know whether you're a man or a woman but obviously the question um, I hope wouldn't have to be asked but you're only to date believers never ever ever unbelievers so i hope that's clear enough here is an another anonymous question um pastor on i've been living with an unbeliever for 6 years i recently got saved and i know it's wrong to live together what should i do now god bless you thank you for uh, for coming to faith in jesus christ and welcome to the family of god but Knowing it's wrong is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. You know what you're doing is wrong, so you got to stop doing it, and you got to stop doing it now. So you go to the person that you've been that you're living with, and you simply say, "I gave my life to Jesus. I hope you do too. At some point, but I can no longer be with you in the way that we are together. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Period." I know how old-fashioned that sounds, but like I told you yesterday, God is old. He doesn't care. He makes the rules. And now that you come to the family of God, there's like new ownership in you. And Jesus doesn't want to share you with an unsaved man or woman. So now that you know you've been saved, or now that you know what you're doing is wrong, you have to fix it. That's what repentance is all about. Feeling bad about it or knowing it's wrong means nothing if you don't act on it. So here's what you do. You, you leave. Or if, if the other person leaves, somebody has to leave. And you do it now. You don't wait. You do it now. You know, Anonymous, this is a situation that happens all the time here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, people get saved. We, we have invitations to be saved every single week. Um, every time I teach, um, and, and many, many times you'll see a couple, uh, our assumption is because we think everybody's doing right, uh, our assumption is that they're, they're married, we find out after they give their heart to Jesus, when, when people are talking to him and praying for him that they're not, um, we let them know right away, and, and, and this is hard because in many cases, um, um, there's no place, seemingly no place to go. I always go to the man and say, your job is to present her holy and blameless before the Lord. So that means if you've got to sleep in your car, or sleep in your truck, you go do that. Go to a neighbor, go to a friend, go to a family member, but go somewhere. But now that Jesus is in charge, let's do this right. Let's put this relationship on solid ground. Get married, and then we'll help you through this process. We have, in many, many occasions, uh, provided places, rooms for somebody to stay while they want to get right with God. But it's really important. You know it's wrong now, so you've got to do something about it. And it's got to be now. So you go tell your boyfriend or your girlfriend that you can't do this anymore because this breaks Jesus's heart. And because you gave your life to Jesus, you don't want to break his heart anymore. Sometimes taking a stand for Jesus in that way will be the very thing that God uses to trigger the person you live with to come to Christ. If it means that much to you, he must be real, he or she would think. So please, please, please get out of the relationship and do it right now. One final thought. If the person you're living with is still an unbeliever, and that seems likely, then you can't be with him or her. You also then need to tell them, that there's no chance that this relationship is ever going to go anywhere after this because I'm only going to be with somebody who loves Jesus. I think about Ray and Jenny. That's what she did. They both got saved. I had the opportunity, the privilege of baptizing them this month at our baptism event. You stand for Jesus, he'll stand for you. Thank you very much. Here is a question from Jeremy. Should we pray to the Father, to Jesus, or to the Holy Spirit? I don't mean to be glib about this, Jeremy, but the answer is yes to all. It doesn't matter who you pray to. It really doesn't matter who you pray to. The Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There's no... Um, competition between the two of them or the three of them Uh, it's one God, three persons Uh, they're not jealous of one another they're not counting well she prayed to me uh, three times and, and you she prayed to you six times there's nothing like that going on there's perfect unity and so we pray to God and God is one God three persons Father, Son and Spirit and so we should just pray. Now, maybe this will help a little bit, Jeremy. When I am praying, just out walking conversationally, uh, I'm almost always talking to Jesus. Um, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Uh, I know, I know the, that, that's the person of the Holy Spirit, but His job, the Spirit's job is to reveal Jesus. So I talk to Jesus. Jesus came that we might know the Father. He's the only way we can relate to the Father. So as you talk with Jesus you become more and more familiar with Him. And because you become more familiar with Him you have a greater capacity to understand just how much God loves you. So Jeremy, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Walt, and he says, if God is love, why is there suffering in the world? Um, Walt, that's a question that's usually uh, almost always asked by an unbeliever. So I'm going to assume that you are not a Christian. Um, We know God is love. Our Bible says he's love, but... More than that, he gave his only son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's a love that's been given to this world, Um, indisputable evidence about that love. So the question is why there's suffering in the world. Why, Why would we connect God with the suffering? Why would we blame God for the suffering? Now, I know the intent of your question is why doesn't God stop suffering? If God loves me, why am I suffering? If God loves the world, why is there suffering in the world? Well, we live in a world filled with sin. We don't live in the world that God created. He created a world that was perfect. We humans ruined it. And humans, sin, rebellion against God is the cause of the suffering. So you need to rethink even how you phrase your question. Why do we think we have an obligation or rather that God has an obligation to eliminate our suffering when the world brings us suffering on itself? It is absolutely true that our world is suffering and we're going to suffer more. But one day, Walt, and this is what I hope you really take into your heart, One day God is going to end the suffering. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus returns and he defeats all of his enemies with a word. And after the enemies of God are destroyed, then he's going to eliminate suffering for a thousand years on this earth. There will be perfect justice, perfect righteousness. Jesus will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then after the thousand years is up, he's going to give us even more. A new heaven and a new earth, completely perfect, forever and ever and ever. The reason he hasn't ended suffering yet, according to First Peter, is that God is patient, unwilling that any should perish. He still wants to save people. Walt, you're one of those people God wants to save. God loves you so much that He sent His Son to die in your place, to take the punishment that your sins deserved. And without you doing anything other than believing... He's offering to forgive all of your sins. He offers you his perfect righteousness. Paul writes that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. What that says, Walt, is that God's offered to swap with you. You give him your filth, he'll give you his perfection. That's love. God doesn't get any more loving than that. So blame the suffering in this world on the enemies of God. Not on God, because God is the answer. He always has been and always will be the answer. And God's name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died for your sins. So, Walt, let the Lord knock on the door of your heart. 340-9585 for your live calls here is a question from Les uh, he says I know God is love okay you should talk to Walt then Les I know God is love but why would he send people to hell forever instead of just letting them die and go into nothingness you see that's not an option it's a question that we get you know especially when people are immature Christians they don't know their Bibles very well they, they, they don't understand that God is a God of justice And so there has to be punishment. Now, unfortunately, punishment is eternal, just like reward is eternal. Why is that the case? It's because we are all created forever in the image of God to be eternal beings. You know, Les, when you were born, from that point forward, you stepped right into eternity. Now, part of your time here on earth is going to be spent in this body and struggling like the rest of people struggle. But... The minute you leave this body, you—you you, the real you, not, not the body that you inhabit, but the real you then goes into the presence of Jesus, and you're in perfect eternity. Well, the people who reject Jesus, in spite of the fact that he did everything he could to, to, to win their hearts, they are also eternal. And I think the simplest way to say this is that this world that we live in, the time that we have on this earth, this is the time that God gives us to say yes to Him. This is the time that God gives us to ask for forgiveness. And if we don't make the right choice, then we step into eternity, but it's an eternity of torment. So God makes us eternal. There's no option of just dying and going into nothingness. God makes us eternal. We have to choose where we're going to spend eternity. In heaven? That's with Jesus. Or in hell? That's, by definition, separated from Jesus. So, hell is the choice that we make, and literally, lest we make it over Jesus' dead body. It's the one thing He doesn't want any of us to have to deal with here's a question from Victor he says can you explain the great white throne judgment and will Christians be judged you know Victor we had the question earlier about uh, the the famous seat um, by somebody who misunderstood what that what that was all about Uh, the only judgment Christians are going to face is is that judgment Uh, that's when our works are going to be judged, whether they're good or good for nothing. That's when we're going to receive the crowns of righteousness that we can throw at Jesus' feet, or we're going to lose rewards. God will give rewards that he intended perhaps for me to somebody else who was faithful when I wouldn't be faithful. God's work is always going to get done. So that's the only judgment that Christians will ever face. The great white throne judgment is a judgment where Um, At the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, the millennium, um, those who reject Jesus Christ will be sentenced into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. That's the great white throne judgment. And we won't be there. Um, We will be witnesses of that judgment. And we will proclaim God's holiness in that judgment but this is this is only of judgment reserved for unbelievers, those who have rejected Jesus Christ, uh, those who took the mark of the beast. Um, we know that that it's eternal, it's terrible. Um, the man that we call the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be the two people in the great white uh, at the great white throne judgment in the lake of fire for a thousand years. Until then, everybody else is rejected. Jesus over the centuries will be cast into the lake of fire along with the devil uh, and the the fallen demons, fallen angels. Um, So the great white throne judgment really has nothing to do with Christians at all. Jesus took the judgment for your sin and for mine. Jesus took that judgment. So I hope that helps. Victor, thanks for the question. We Inside two minutes, we don't have time for any more calls. Here is a question from Dennis. He wants to know why are there so many different Bible translations? Uh, Dennis, the reason there are Bible, different Bible translations, the obvious difference is that there are are uh, lots and lots of different languages, and and so there's going to be different Bible lang- or Bible translations. Now, if you're talking about the English translations of the Bible, the reason that there's so many different Bible translations is because language, the use of language, changes. Uh, it, it's always it's very fluid. It it, it never remains the same. Uh, in the 1611 King James, words meant different things than they mean today. I'll give you an example. The word conversation in the 1611 King James, uh, it meant behavior. Today we we wouldn't understand conversation is two people talking, but then it meant behavior. And so a new translation, so that we'll understand it, retranslates that word. Um, in a way that we'll understand the the intent of the author. So that's why there are different Bible translations. There are also different Bible translations, Dennis, because there are different manuscripts that are being translated, uh, whether the the, the majority text uh, manuscripts, the Textus Receptus, or uh, the Alexandrian, the newer ones, Uh, They're just faithful to the manuscript that they're translating. So I hope that answers your question. Hey, been a good program. Great questions today. Thank you for uh, tuning in every day. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. Really grateful that we get to spend an hour together every afternoon. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word.